This is a test to see how the audio will sound if I were to record via my tablet. My tablet's more mobile, and when I record these audio journals, I like to pace. I'm a pacer. Um, it seems like I can organize my thoughts better if I'm in motion. And so I'll tend to do that. And if the audio quality isn't that good, then I will probably go to the laptop with the microphone and we'll see how that goes. So what is this all about? Why am I recording an audio journal? Well, I'm at the end of my seminary formation, academically speaking. And at this juncture, I really want to collect my thoughts. One of the gems that I got from one of my beloved professors, spiritual fathers at the seminary in St. Catharines, Ontario, was that I think it was an ethics class that he told us. Maybe, or maybe it was history. One of the, cause he taught the history classes as well. Could have been in one of the latter history classes where he said to each of us, just as there are a myriad of theologians in the history of the church, each theologian needs to figure out a way to do theology in their own manner. At the end of it, as another of my beloved professors said, what is important about doing theology is that at the end, you must still, like a mosaic, you can use whatever colors you want, you can use whatever patterns you want, but at the end, you must still have Jesus Christ. It must still be the Pancrater. So, doing theology where at the end the image you have is clearly recognizable Christ. So, if we were to put this in academic terms, One's orthodoxy depends on one's Christology. And all the church fathers, early church fathers, medieval church fathers, and since I'm Lutheran, Lutheran church fathers, at the end of the day, they did theology in their own way. And they were doing it right, a clear picture of Christ. And so that's kind of what this audio journal, I think in the majority, is about. That's its raison d'entre. I need to figure out how to do theology in the Joshua J. Radke way. And I'm pretty sure I have an idea of how to go about that, because one thing that's really appreciated uh, one thing that I really appreciate, and yes, by the way, there'll be a lot of stopping and starting. This is raw. This is right from the heart. 
to the mouth, um, trying to have my filters, trying to learn to be able to speak with articulation and uh, lucidly, but at the same time, I don't have the time to do audio engineering with my audio files. There's a lot of other things in the world of theology, in the world of being a pastor, which are far more pressing and immediate than is my audio files going to sound pristine and compete with the cream of the crop? I'm not trying to do that anyway. Um, I'd much rather talk to people in person. I'm doing this as a way to, well, I have a reason why I'm doing this. And maybe that'll be revealed the further we get along. Um, nothing, you know, <laughs> top secret or anything like that. But I, I do have a goal in mind for why I'm doing these, these audio journals. But to get back to what um, I was just talking about. So I'm pretty sure I already know how I want to do theology. And now this is me actually speaking it out and seeing how, if anybody does end up listening to these, what they think. And the way that one should expect Joshua J. Radke to do theology is they should expect, number one, that my background is a storyteller. Uh, for many years, I pursued being a screenwriter, um, had a fair amount of success getting to the point where I may have gotten something produced, but... At the end of the day, uh, what is necessary to be a screenwriter in today's um, entertainment culture, I just don't have that level of commitment. I don't have the capacity. I don't have the money. Um, so I've kind of settled over into the next best thing, which is trying to independently produce and maybe publish down the line um, my stories as comic books, which are effectively movie storyboards. And I've already been working with an artist now for the better part of a year or so, maybe a little more than that, on one of my stories, bringing it to uh, the comic book page. Uh, I did work with another comic book artist several years back. Uh, we never got a chance to finish it. It's in the same, uh, well, same genre, yeah, but it's, it's I have a a, um, a a brand, I guess you would call it, called Stitch Crosses, which is effectively me taking all my love of knights and history and Christianity and high history, which I guess some folks don't really know anymore what that is, but high history is effectively um, history infused with the Christian supernatural. Um, history and the heavenly realms interacting with each other uh, in the manner after St. Paul's um, Ephesians 6 and in other 
aspects of scripture. So that's kind of where I, I land. And, uh, so you can look for those maybe sometime down the line, but that's, that's what I am. Number one, I'm a storyteller. I have been in love with story, capital S, for as long as I can remember. So that is going to be a significant characteristic of my doing theology. Um, I am also very much focused on Christology, because if your Christology is off, everything else tends to be as well. And that's a very Lutheran thing. That's actually not very unique at all. That's a very Lutheran thing to be focused on Christology. But a particular couple of particular aspects of Christology that I enjoy, and I guess in the end, you can't really focus on one element of Christology without touching on all the others. But if someone were to, to ask me, within Christology, what, what do you like? Um, like, what, what really uh, has, has your fancy? And uh, eschatology has always been very important, and that effectively is the end times for sure. I mean, that's what people think of um, right away when you hear the word eschatology, is, is end times matter, which is true. Um, I particularly enjoy those things that are connected to the new creation, to resurrection, an- angelology, demonology, the interplay of all these things. And I'm also very big into sacramental theology, in particular, the Lord's Supper, Holy Communion, the Eucharist, however you want to refer to it. Uh, but actually, I think all all of its names have different aspects. So, the Lord's Supper informs us about one aspect of that sacrament. Calling it the Holy Communion is actually another aspect of it. Calling it the Eucharist is another aspect of it. So really, all those names are proper. It just really depends on what you're referring to when you are calling the sacrament of the altar by one of those those names. So uh, that is something else you can expect from me. And then also history. I'm, I'm a history buff. And um, as you know, a Christian, we believe that God acts in human history. That is a very important element. Um, human history and heavenly history in Christ especially are connected directly and profoundly. So those are all things, and there's probably some others too that, as I, uh, that will come out as I discuss these things. But those, I think, are the, f- well, three elements with one of those kind of broken down into an A and a B. So those four things are things that, that you can expect from the majority of these audio files. Um, I'm titling the audio journal, uh, and the name may change, may evolve, but right now I'm kind of riffing off of C.S. Lewis's The Necessity of Chivalry, uh, which is going to be an essay that will be referred to here quite often, so it's one that you should familiarize yourself with if you're going to engage with this audio journal. Um, 
and I would just tweak the name, uh, the necessity of Corbenic. And Corbenic is uh, a part of the Ar- the Arthuriad, which is a body of literature that is very near and dear to me. Um, I fell in love with it since my dad bought me my first copy of Lancelin Green's. Um, uh, basically, he he took the Arthuriad, and he was like the first author to take the Arthuriad and different aspects of it, not just what Mallory wrote, but also you have Tristan and Isolde and some other uh, aspects of the Arthuriad not treated by the classic Arthurian authors or bodies of work because a lot of the Arthur material is anonymously written itself a composite of earlier legends and oral tales and things. So, um, so familiarize yourself with the Arthurian, especially the things before Mallory. Um, I'm particularly interested. There are two, um, there, there are two kinds of Arthurian literature out there. Uh, there's the pre-Volga and the post-Volga. And most of the Arthurian literature that people interact with today via books, movies, TV shows, um, tend to be post-Volga. And the post-Volga had a very distinct reason for existence. Um, but first, we had the pre-Volga. And the pre-Volga is the roots of the Arthurian. And the majority of the Arthuriad is written in French or Latin, but mostly French. Um, and so it is kind of odd that it's referred to as the matter of Britain, because it is about Britain. Arthur's kingdom is loca- located in Logris, which is uh, the, the name of Arthur's kingdom in Britannia, uh, about the 7th century or so. And in the pre-Volgate, you've got Robert de Boron's uh, Joseph, Joseph of Arimathea and Merlin, which are two really important foundational works of the Arthuriad as we know it. I don't really deal with Merlin as much. Merlin's a, a, an, an odd an odd character. He's more of a creature than a character. Um, and he has an interesting story, but I tend to deal mostly with grail lore within the Arthuriad. And so Joseph of Arimathea, according to the Boron's legend is the one who brings the grail to Britannia. And from there you get Cretan de Troyes famous Percival tale. Um, and he never finished it. He died before he could finish it. And we're left off with Percival failing the great test of the Grail questions in Castle Corbenic. The Castle Corbenic is an important setting for the Arthurian. And 
the it's not often referred to as the Castle Corbanic. A lot of it is referred to as just the Grail Castle. And so Corbanic is essentially a French word which, depending on who you talk to, in terms of the scholars out there, they have a number of different opinions. But I like to go with the oldest opinion because the one closest to history tends to be the one closer to the truth. And this is translated, it's believed to be kind of a derivative of either a French word translating to blessed vessel or a French word even more profoundly translating to blessed body. I really like that latter one. And it's also, if you look at kind of the history around it and things like that, it seems to me the one that is the most likely given the fact that the Holy Grail in the matter of Arthur is intended to be interpreted as the Eucharist. Um, And not just the Eucharist, but it's also important to know that around the time that the Arthurian literature is being initially written, the understanding of the Lord's Supper within the context of transubstantiation is really important because transubstantiation is a rather new understanding of the sacrament. Um, it's quote-unquote invented around the 9th century as an answer to Augustine, who tended to spiritualize the sacrament, maybe unintending um, to do so in a, in a way that would be misunderstood in the centuries to follow. So there was a great big debate in the 9th century between two prominent theologians of, of that time, uh, Radbertus and Ratramnus. And the former was defending the very real presence of Jesus bodily in the sacrament, and the latter one tended to see a more symbolical um, understanding. And honestly, we can see these two positions reflected even in the church today with the more Catholic church bodies going with the, the, the real presence, as it's termed, and the Protestant church bodies tending more towards the symbolical, focusing on the memorial aspect of it. So all of this stuff has come down to us through the centuries. But this is kind of where it started. And so transubstantiation was a, a, a new understanding of the sacrament. By the time the matter of Arthur was written, that understanding is a few hundred years old. So it's still kind of newish and being established. And remember, unlike today where things can be reported on and essays can be written and within weeks, you've got understandings of doctrine out there for the church to uh, consume and deliberate on and meditate on and, and debate on. You know, we're talking the medieval era People aren't reading books. Books really are not a major thing. Um, 
And so it's going to take a while for this to trickle down. And so in a way, I believe that this early Arthur material was one of its functions was to establish this practice of trans transubstantiation um, in Christendom, across Christendom. And the story, I believe, was intended to have that function, which is really its own uh, audio uh, journal entry, if you will. So the reason I am looking at this as the, the title for the audio journal is because for me, the essence of Christianity, and not just for me, I think the way that the church fathers write, the Catholic church fathers particularly, um, whether it's the early church fathers right on down through the Oxford movement into uh, modern times, um, particularly in my Christian tradition, Lutherandom, um, this is a very, especially Hermann Zasse, if you want to put a name on someone who really defended the corporeal presence of Christ in the sacrament. Um, this is the essence of Christianity. We are the body of Christ. And it makes sense that to be the body of Christ, we must consume the body of Christ sacramentally. And that is, as my professor at seminary liked to say, likes to say, um, the sacrament is the heartbeat of the church. And of course, as you know, without the heart functioning, the body dies. So that is a significant aspect. And so I believe that our understanding of Christianity to receive it in its full potency is located in the mystical union with our Lord and Savior who is ascended the highest heaven. And I don't mean that in a vertical direction. I mean that in a veiled understanding that he is no longer visible to us, but I don't mean that he you know, ascended like a space shuttle. No, he ascended to the throne. He ascended walking up steps to a throne and is there even now preparing for the final advent. And meanwhile, we here in the church receive his promise to be with us always, even until the end of the age, in the sacrament. That is where we receive the body and blood of our Lord into us. And it is through that that we are able to bear fruit ourselves for our neighbors in our communities in our homes, in our churches, the three estates. So I think that is an appropriate title for this audio journal series. The necessity, if you want to literally translate it, the necessity of the blessed body of, of Christ. So the necessity of Corbenic. And I, I want to put Corbenic in there. I want to keep it Corbenic because I want people to understand that when they listen to these audiophiles, they are and should expect a regular diet of the intersection of Christianity and story. Because that is where, as C.S. Lewis, one of my 
big heroes. You'll hear a lot of C.S. Lewis on these audio journals. So he's another person you should familiarize yourself with if you haven't already. Um, Re-familiarize yourself, because I will be referencing his works quite a bit. Um, So as Lewis would say, stories are the way that authors can get past watchful dragons. And as he says in another one of his essays, I believe in the collection God in the Dock, um, for him it is far more important for writers to write well and let their Christian faith inform their writing than for a Christian author to deliberately write overtly Christian fiction, which tends to be quite bad and tends to want to convert the reader, which is, of course, its own problem if the reader's already Christian. And chances are, if they're not Christian, they're not going to read, they're not going to read the, the stories. They're not going to watch the stories because they're not interested in that. So you've got to write the kinds of stories that can engage anybody, regardless of where their spirituality is at, and have those stories retain their value. That is essential. And that is what Lewis really wants. And you're not going to steal past people's watchful dragons if you're making obvious overtures to the Christian faith. Now, obviously, people can argue that in Narnia, he actually makes rather obvious overtures. But I think it's interesting, the number of non-Christians who have read Narnia that find out later that Narnia is reflecting Lewis's deeply held Christian faith, and they get upset. They feel like they've been duped. They feel like they've been taken advantage of. So clearly, Aslan is not as obvious the Christ figure as as maybe people think. Um, but that's really the important thing. So we need story to intersect with Christianity, and we need good stories to present Christianity. And those stories, of course, need to be entertaining in and of themselves if that's going to work. But again, that's another audio journal entry probably at some point down the line. Right now, I want to focus in on the necessity of Corbenic. And to do that, I've got a bit of an outline. Um, I've got a bit bit of a track. It's about six or seven, quote-unquote, levels deep. And over the course of these audio journal entries, I'm going to be going through those... um, those levels. Uh, I'm not going to touch every single aspect of it, even if I give mention to it. Like, I, if I don't think I can really touch on something properly, I may mention the the resource, the book, the essay, uh, or even a movie in some cases for people to engage with. If I, because there are just some aspects of things that you can't get into deep enough. And I really want this to be a bit of a, of a macro picture. I want this to be a bit of a pullback so that folks can see through the audio the big picture. They can see the image of scripture, the pattern of scripture from a, a, a wide, you know, what they say uh, in, in the film industry, uh, a wide shot. I really want these audio journal entries to be a wide shot of Christianity. Uh, I, I think there are other more appropriate ways to unpack 
the different elements of those wide shots. Um, we may get into some of those, but if I were to do that, it would probably be a separate series uh, because I really want this to be a bit more of a nutshell where someone can come in, engage with the audio, and come out with the bigger picture. And having said that, um, I don't know how long these will all be. I'd like to keep them to 20, 30 minutes. Um, because, you know, I want to respect the time that people may or may not have. So you can more or less count on that. And the very first thing that we're going to talk about in the next audio journal entry is going to be typology. Typology is essential to having a proper hermeneutic, if we can use that word. That's a big word. If you don't know what that word means, a hermeneutic is effectively a way to approach a body of literature, um, you know, of course, which Christianity is. The Bible is the literature we approach. And of course, the spinoffs of, of scripture, which come in my case, the Lutheran Confessions, uh, other traditions have other uh, confessional documents that maybe they, like in the Anglican Church, you have the 39 Articles. Uh, in, in the Romanist Church, you'll have uh, the Council of Trent and various encyclicals and other things that will come out of the papal chair. Um, so for Lutherans, the hermeneutic is scripture. And then the confessions for us are a right exposition of scripture. So obviously they're not on the same level of scripture. And in order to have a proper uh, posture, if you will, is that one needs typology. And we'll get into it with the next episode, but I kind of, if any of you have seen the movie National Treasure, the first movie in particular, you have Benjamin Gates. He's got these pair of spectacles with different colors in it. And as he shifts the, the colors different things off the back of the Constitution. There's a map there, and different elements of the map pop out to tell Benjamin Gates and his team where the treasure is that they're looking for. And so typology is very much like that. You need to be able to shift the lenses when you're reading Scripture. And as you do, and really the Holy Spirit is the one illuminating the Holy Spirit is the one popping the things off the page for us. But typology is one of those lenses. Or maybe typology is the spectacles themselves and being able to shift the colors are just different aspects of applying to typology. I don't really know. I haven't really worked all that out. But what, however you want to go about it, typology should be seen as those spectacles. That is how we should be reading scripture. And typology is a bit controversial. And we're going to get into that with the next episode. So thank you again for listening if uh, to who's ever out there. And uh, feedback is welcome. Um, if you are in Reverend Jonathan Fisk's Discord server, uh, the, 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 the Mad Christian Discord server, uh, you can find me there under different pseudonyms. Um, but I generally, uh, I, I am in charge of one of the channels there called the Templar Paradigm. So 
you can see me in there posting. And if you want to engage me there, that's probably the best place to go. Um, because I want what I'm doing to be part of Fisk's larger uh, narrative, if you will. So thanks again, and I will see you in the uh, next century.